You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the theory of capitalist breakdown associated with Henrik Grossman. Andrew has just written a paper criticizing Grossman's approach to theorizing capitalist crisis. So we're going to be talking about that paper and about what's wrong with uh, Grossman's theory of capitalist breakdown. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about Henrik Grossman and Capitalist Breakdown. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on Wednesday, October 13th, and we are going to be talking about the October 5th Senate hearings from last week, in which the Senate heard testimony from Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. That hearing followed in the wake of a Wall Street Journal series of articles based on the leak of internal documents that Francis Haugen had provided to the Wall Street Journal. So, Andrew, turns out Facebook is a real problem. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> I feel like it's uh, like a, last year I was reading a biography of Stalin. And when I finished, my wife said to me, so did you learn anything? And I said, turns out Stalin was a bad dude. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in the case of, you know, well, a lot of people, you know, extolled Stalin. In the case of Facebook and other social media, you know, the tide has turned. So for for some of us, this is not news. It's too old to be news. But, you know, public opinion is coming around. Uh, even in at least part of the Congress, opinions coming around. I mean, uh, evidently, the halls of Congress are... Uh, filled with lobbyists for big tech, including Facebook, and they've been successful thus far. So, you know, you had a a committee, uh, and both among the Democrats and the Republicans on the committee, there was no love lost between them and Facebook. But, you know, if these people on the committee start to propose legislation, uh, it's it's a big if as to what what they're going to be able to get and how it's, you know, whether it's going to be stymied and so forth, but I mean, it's very. I think it's very clear to everybody that something terrible has been happening, and if the Congress doesn't do anything about it, nothing will be done. Every time I read something that involves revelations about things that are being spread on Facebook, it is shocking to me. Even though I've been reading reports and exposés about Facebook for for years, I mean, every time there's a kerfuffle in the in the press about Facebook, it blows my mind again how how many horrible things are facilitated by this website it, it was sort of a lot often like at the bottom of the stories in the past week but the fact that they you know are very aware that drug traffickers and human traffickers use their website and that they've done very little to remedy that is just mind-blowing i mean there was a report last year that over 50% of recruitment for human trafficking happens through Facebook. Uh, I'll tell you, the, to me, the most important takeaway from Francis Haugen's testimony is 
Facebook knows all of this stuff. In the case of a lot of the big problems, they've done internal research. There's people on the inside, you know, who actually have the task of, like, flagging all these problems and trying to do something about them. And then there are the other people who have the task of making sure that the company grows and gets clicks and gets engagement and ad revenue. And, you know, what she said is... Look, they know all of this, but the people who are in charge of driving engagement and driving ad revenue, they always win out. That's the problem. She's basically boiled down for the case of like one company. All, all of the problems of capitalism are re- reduced to, you know. But I, I thought she was very, very good. I mean, she's, she's just a wonderful person. She's doing a great public service at great risk. And uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative. And I, I hope, uh, you know, tens of millions of other people are as well. There's so many complications when it comes to whatever policies are proposed to deal with the Facebook problem. One being that, you know, Facebook has, is an international company in terms of its reach. So what does that mean for one government to regulate it when it's got its fingers in the politics of and the attention span of people all over the globe? But there's also just, you know, the basic fact that social media companies are immune from any liability for criminal activity that happens on their website. I mean, this is a thing that they will be you know, you hear people talk, oh, they need to regulate it, or Facebook needs to be more transparent about their research, or, you know, what about just having a company be, you know, if your site is facilitating human trafficking, then you should be criminally responsible for that activity if you're facilitating it. In any other context, if there's human, if you're facilitating, you know, if I'm like renting my car out to human traffickers, right? I am criminally, you know, liable for that. But if I'm like facilitating that through web a website somehow, I'm just immune to any responsibility. Right. The the rationale for that is you're just providing a platform. You're not a publisher. You're not doing anything to facilitate the actual publication of this, which is hard to understand that. But that's the the, the current law. There was discussion in the committee, you know, uh, about this. And, you know, Francis Hagen said, look, it would do some good to uh, get rid of this Section 230, which gives Facebook, etc., immunity from prosecution for what they publish because supposedly they're not publishing it. But she says it, would, it wouldn't really solve all of the problems. It would solve a certain, maybe, you know, uh, subset of problems, but the key problems uh, are uh, connected to the uh, engagement-based algorithm. I mean, the, the basic problem, she was very clear about this without a lot of technicalities. They try to get people to use it. They try to get people to, quote, engage, to click, to share, to do everything. And they're very aware that, like, this is driven by dopamine, you know, little hits of dopamine, and especially effective with, like, teenagers uh, who don't have very good control over uh, things like that. So everything that they do is driven by getting more people to use the platform, more people to, quote, engage on it. All the algorithms are used to maximize uh, that engagement. And she was saying, you're not going to really solve all the problems of, of, of Facebook until you tackle the algorithm the, the kind of algorithm that it is where it's there to maximize engagement it's there to maximize the time that people spend the quickness of their reactions the, the number of people they uh, share with you know and and so forth and so on 
it, it seems like she has like a very detailed knowledge so that she can tell you this would work, that wouldn't work. She also said, you know, you could break up Facebook, but that wouldn't work because that would not get to the issue of the algorithm. And what has to happen is they, they can't be allowed to suck people in and give them little hits of dopamine so that they're addicted uh, more and more and more. And she compared this to like big tobacco and to the opioids and everything. She says this is an addiction, you know, and it works through through dopamine. So, Well, I mean, we've seen these cycles of whether it's tobacco or opi- opioids or the cycle where these companies have highly addictive and very socially destructive practices and they wreak havoc sometimes for generations and then finally there's enough political will and the stars align and there's enough regulation to to rein them in and, and but in the meantime like i mean think of how like bad the opioid addiction had to get before anyone did anything about that and then in the end like people like the sacklers they just kind of walk walk away scot free or the tobacco companies, you know, finally, we had this amazing anti-smoking campaign and smoking levels really dropped. And then now we have e-cigarettes to worry about and kids are smoking e-cigarettes again. So it just, just seems like this is like the nature of regulation as the solution to capitalism's problems is you just end up with these like cycles of socially destructive, irresponsible corporate behavior. Eventually it becomes, gets to a tipping point. Maybe there's some regulation, and then at some point, capital finds some way around the regulation, and the whole circus starts up again. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, among the things where I thought Frances Halligan, her expertise is not broad enough for her to be saying some of the things that she said. She said, you know, what, what you need is a regulatory framework so that people like her with the knowledge, you know, in the background, you know, from the tech industry, engineers and so forth, they can be the regulators. So what she's telling us is the people from the industry should regulate the industry. The track record of that is is not stellar. It, it is the problem in most cases. You know, I, I wouldn't go down the line with everything she says solution but she was rather optimistic i mean she was not saying that social media platforms are just by their nature driven towards you know this kind of hostile dangerous destructive dopamine producing crap she said you know we could have socially responsible enjoyable decent social media she put a lot of emphasis on uh changing the way the news feed comes in you know now it's driven by you've responded to you get a lot more of that right that's that's engagement driven she says if, if it were chronologically based i guess the newest stuff appears uh that would solve a lot of the problems but but you know she was rather optimistic i thought in terms of uh, what what could be done i mean to my mind the, the, the bigger question that nobody is raising uh so we got to raise it is why was this allowed to happen in the first place socialists, Marxists in particular, used to talk a lot about the anarchy and unplanned and destructive stuff that happens in capitalism, the anarchy of capitalism, because there is, you know, nobody minding the store, so to speak. That's the the, the nature of a capitalist society. That's the nature of these businesses, these innovations and so forth. Nobody is looking out for the public. It's one thing to close the barn door after cows run out and the cows got you know all kinds of lobbyists in congress 
how, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen the next time with some other great idea, you know, the next new thing? How do we make sure that it doesn't become the next new thing? How do we gain some social control over the decisions to have immense effect on our lives? There is something very, very wrong with a system where you follow this libertarian dream of crowds will decide and there's wisdom in crowds and just let it all hang out. It'll all sort itself out. Well, it doesn't work. It does not work. We've seen that it doesn't work. And what we have to do is got to be at least talking right now in a very serious, concerted way that we cannot let something like this happen again. This way of letting things happen and then trying to close the barn door, it, it, it's got to stop. It's gotten too, too dangerous again and again and again. Well, we are out of time in this current event section, so we'll have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation about Henrik Grossman and his theory of capitalist breakdown. We're recording this main segment on October 1st, and we're going to be talking about a paper that Andrew has written, or actually is still writing, but I, we're hoping it'll be out and published on With Sober Senses by the time this podcast goes live. And the paper is called Henrik Grossman's Breakdown Model on the Real Cause of the Fictitious Breakdown Tendency. And it is a critique of the breakdown theory by Henrik Grossman. So, Andrew, first... Since some of our listeners might be only passingly familiar with Grossman's work, in a nutshell, what is his breakdown model? And, and maybe even first, who was Grossman? So he, he wrote this uh, book putting forward the breakdown theory. Uh, he was in his late 40s at the time. A book came out in 1929. Uh, he was a Jew uh, from Poland who moved to Germany. He was a member of the Frankfurt School, actually. But he didn't get along with them because, you know, his outlook and interests were quite different from the other people. Most people who looked at his theory were not impressed or dismissive and whatever, partly for political reasons, it seems. But he was a major influence on Paul Maddox Sr. And Paul Maddox Sr. brought him to the attention of, of the English-speaking world. Grossman's book was not available in English, as far as I know, until the early uh, 1990s. And even now, we, we only have an abridged version in English. I believe that a complete version of the work is, is soon to come out, from Rick Kuhn and uh, Jairus Banerjee. But in terms of the breakdown theory, it's pretty simple. To put it in the terms that Grossman would want, constant capital grows at a faster rate than employment and the production of new value. Uh, as a result, uh, there comes a time when the surplus value that's generated is insufficient to meet the demands of accumulation because the constant capital is growing faster than the new value and the surplus value. At this point, there is a breakdown in the economy. There is not a sur uh, enough surplus value to keep the economy accumulating at the same rate. That's the way uh, Grossman would put it. And at that point, you get an economic crisis rather than a you know full-scale irreversible collapse. You get an economic crisis that uh, involves wrenching adjustments in the economy but they restore the possibility of uh, healthy accumulation once again, and so we go uh, around the circle once again. That is Grossman's view. In addition, he says when the 
point is reached at which there's not enough surplus value to allow accumulation to continue, all of the surplus value that's there is being plowed into new means of production and new goods for the workers to keep up the accumulation, so there's nothing left for a capitalist to consume. But they're not going to, like, you know, just put up with that, so they try to, like, fight to lower wages, lower workers' benefits, and keep up their incomes in, in that fashion. So then we then have a class struggle in the form of a struggle over income distribution. So what, what he's actually predicting is, or explaining I mean, in a certain sense, uh, trying to explain, is uh, the recurrent crises and class struggle. But he says it all issues from this unavoidable breakdown condition. So obviously we're going to get into more details as that we <clears throat> talk more, but why in the first place, why were you, you know, why did you decide to write this critique of Grossman now? Is there any anything new? Well, you know, I've, I've known for a very, very long time that, you know, that there, there are fatal flaws in this story, but it's really only in the last decade that I've seen uh, how much interest and support Grossman now has in the United States and Canada, uh, elsewhere. Uh, a lot of the people who would seem to be like supporters of Marx's crisis theory, rooted in the tendential fall in the rate of profit, they're actually supporters of Grossman's theory. And I realized, you know, after talking to a number of these people, I realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to convince them unless I do a really thorough job, and I just haven't had time, and I really still don't have time, to, to do a thorough job, but I stole some time. What's happening is, as I mentioned, Rick Kuhn and, and Jairus Banerjee are working on a full-scale translation of uh, Grossman's uh, work, and Rick asked me for some help uh, working out the computations. That was a few months back, and that kind of like just re-triggered my interest uh, in the topic. And so I said, okay, like, it's now or never. So when you say that you that there are people who are supporters of Grossman's theory or, or fans of his theory, like, what kind of people? Are these like uh, academic Marxist economists, or are they people that are sort of are politically oriented toward Marx and just sort of want a convenient prediction of of the fatal breakdown of the capitalist system like what's the who are, who are these people it's mo it's mostly the latter there there are some academics among them um, i mean and a, lot, a lot of relatively speaking a lot of academics will say that they you know their work is based on grossman and owes a tremendous debt to grossman or something there are a few people like that i, I shouldn't exaggerate but that's only in a very general sense. I mean, actual adherence of the, the letter of the breakdown theory tends to be people who want that kind of uh, guarantee that capitalism is going to collapse uh, on its own, you know, independent of revolutionary struggle and so forth. Perhaps the most well-known person uh, of that ilk today is a blogger named Michael Roberts. Oh, really? I didn't know he was a Grossman person. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact, in in the paper when I talk about uh, fatalism, I quote from a blog post of Michael Roberts. He said Grossman was the first to point out that crises of capitalism and its final collapse are explained by Marx's law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Talking about his own view, he said capitalism cannot continue indefinitely, but must reach its limits 
as a system of social organization then break down and be replaced by a new system. Uh, and he asserted that eventually the contradictions of capitalist accumulation become so great that capitalism becomes a fetter on human progress, no longer reduces labor time or increases use values sufficiently. Capitalism then heads for a breakdown and the final confrontation with the working class. It's socialism uh, or barbarism. Uh, he says there are continual crises, but capitalism is also marching towards breakdown or a terminal stage. In other words, what does he mean by breakdown and terminal stage? So that's one of the best known devotees of, of Grossman hmm. who's currently out there. So as I think you've implied uh, just a bit ago, Grossman's often presented as a defender of Marxist theory of the tendential fall in the rate of profit. And as listeners probably know, you have been a great defender of Marx's theory of the tendential fall in the rate of profit. So why are you, why are you critiquing Grossman? Well, not everything depends on whether you like where somebody's headed and if they're on the same side. It's important to get things right. And Grossman's breakdown model and the theory that's founded on it are seriously flawed. There's actually no way of repairing it. You can't get it right. But in addition, there are really substantial differences between uh, Grossman's breakdown theory uh, and Marx's uh, crisis theory. To put it in a nutshell, Marx's crisis theory is rooted in this uh, tendential fall in the, the rate of profit. It leads indirectly to crises and so forth and so on. That is not a factor, and Grossman recognized that that was not a factor in the breakdown uh, that he models. And it's not a fact, the fall in the rate of profit is not really a factor or directly a factor in, 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 in the breakdown. Yeah, that was a really interesting part of the paper because I didn't realize Grossman was clear or specific about that difference. Yeah, he, he, he understood it and he says, you know, you're never going to get a breakdown just because the rate of profit falls. Why don't you get a rate uh, a breakdown because when the rate of profit falls? Because even though the rate of profit's falling, there's still some surplus value to be gotten through additional investment. They can still make a profit by when they invest more. Okay, so you need a, you need a breakdown where like they they can't get any more surplus value. So you have to look at the according to to Grossman, what's important here is not the rate of profit but the amount of profit, the so-called massive profit. And supposedly basing himself on what Marx wrote, he develops this idea of absolute overaccumulation, where you reach a point where if the capitalists were to invest more, they could do that, but they wouldn't get any extra profit or surplus value from it. So, because there's just no more to be had. Marx's crisis theory is rooted in this tendential fall on the rate of profit, which indirectly, through a variety of you know intermediate links, sets the stage for the periodic crises of capitalism, recessions, depressions. In Grossman, it's an entirely different thing. I mean, you run out of surplus value. There's not enough surplus value to... It's, question of the massive profit, not the rate. There's not enough surplus value to meet the needs of accumulation. So what happens? Well, the rate of accumulation has to be cut back. And the crisis, recession, depression is a result of that. 
accordingly in, in Marx there is no you know breakdown okay what there what there is is because of the declining profitability and low profitability you get a variety of things happening you get financial problems harder to pay debt you know if you're not making that much profit you get uh, a slowdown in investment because it's just not that profitable uh, and, and so forth and so on. So it, it's a rather complex scenario, not like some mechanistic link between the rate of profit falls and the economy goes into recession. There's no there's no breakdown scenario like that at all in, in, in Marx. But, uh, you know, Grossman was looking for this moment where things absolutely cannot continue under any circumstances whatsoever. Okay, that's the case where the surplus value is not sufficient to meet the demands of accumulation. So you get that point of breakdown, which expresses itself in these economic crises and a struggle over the distribution of income. And I, I know you've explained it already, but just so listeners sort of um, take note in case it is a point of confusion. The word overaccumulation is sometimes used to mean different things in different Marxian economists. So we're not talking about overaccumulation like the underconsumption is sensed, because that's like the opposite of Grossman, right? And, oh, the theory, the theory is completely, completely opposite. But the same term is used, so just so people don't get confused. Right. I mean, oh yeah, sure. He's talking about uh, overaccumulation, but not overaccumulation because there's a lack of demand and too much surplus value. It's like the opposite. There's a big demand for, but there's not enough surplus value. Right. That's what Grossman says. So your paper surprised me. I didn't know how you were going to go about critiquing Grossman, but you do so by saying that Grossman ignores uh, the issue of like physical quantities of commodities. And you incorporate physical quantities uh, in order to explain why his theory is, is so flawed. So why is that? Why are the production of physical quantities important for, for this? You know, I'm just saying often when we're talking about Marx and value theory, we're often deal just kind of in the realm of value quantities and don't talk about how many commodities are represented by a, a, a amount of value. So why is that important for Grossman's argument? The fir first of all, I need to correct what you said a bit. He does not ignore the issue of the physical quantities, the use-value dimension of reproduction. He's very critical of uh, Otto Bauer, whose scheme of reproduction he took over critically and then tried to modify. He understands that you need to, you know, uh, discuss both the value dimension of reproduction, accumulation, both the value dimension and the use-value dimension. The real problem is he is very exact, gives you exact numbers, tables, uh, up the yin-yang with regard to what's happening on the value side. What he gives us for the use-value side, there are no tables, there's no computations, there are just general remarks. And because of that, he really doesn't know what's going on on the use-value side. And so he makes it up. And he relies on his intuitions. And his intuitions were just not up to the task. And he got it wrong. He got it very seriously wrong. He says, okay, Bauer and I assume that the prices of the commodities remain constant despite the technological change. That's what Bauer said. I don't believe that. That's nuts. Okay, so the, the prices per unit of uh, commodities, they tend to fall because of, you know, technological progress, rising productivity. So 
What's the effect of this on the breakdown scenario? Well, it postpones the moment of breakdown. It doesn't, you know, eliminate it. It's just instead of the economy breaking down in year 35, it might be, you know, year 42, year 46, whatever it might be. Okay, so the breakdown tendency continues to be operative, but uh, its action is postponed. How does he know that it's just postponed, not eliminated? He doesn't know that. He has just made it up. He's just relied on his intuition. And why is that? Because he has no calculations and, and no airtight, rigorous, logical reasoning to, to back up what he's saying. It's just, this is what he, he thinks. But, but what he thinks is, it turns out to be wrong. And you could show that on the basis of calculations and some, some rigorous mathematics. So that's that's what I do. So what? Yeah. So what happens? I know we can't like go through the math and <laughs> talk about equations in a lot of detail in a podcast. But in a nutshell, what happens to his theory when you start talking about physical quantities? Okay. Well, first of all, this story. And let me get the, the exact words the man uses because they're, they're so good. What, what, what's what's the source of the breakdown according to Grossman? Quote: The real problem lies in the valorization value. The valorization of capital. There is not enough surplus value to continue accumulation at the postulated rate. Hence the catastrophe. Okay, so the problem is the movement of value and surplus value does not dangle in midair. It's connected with physical things. Okay, so to explain, you, why do you need to know the use values? Well, it's like this. Last year, you spent $100 on jelly beans. This year, you spend $120 on jelly beans. Well, what's the meaning of that? Why is that the case? Is it because you're consuming more jelly beans? Or is it because the price of jelly beans has gone up? Unless you know the physical quantities, you can't answer very simple questions like that. Okay, so you always need to know what the use values are, and what the, the, the prices per unit of use value are. And it's those things that give you your value magnitudes. You know, if, if we've got uh, investment of $100 in constant capital, well, why is that? Well, it's because we've got 50 units of constant capital and their price is $2 each. 50 times two is 100. So this 100 doesn't come from out of nowhere. Okay, and it can't be determined by just saying, well, it grows by X percent a year. The percentage by which it grows per year depends on the amount by which the physical amount of means of production grows and what's happening to the price. You know, is it $2? Does it fall? By how much it falls and so forth. In order to explain anything, any of the stuff that goes on, you need to know not just you know, the postulated growth of value, but why it's occurring, whether the underlying physical quantities and the prices per unit are making any sense and, and, and so forth. Okay, which is very different, I should say, from the idea that the physical quantities are determining the value. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, that, that, that's, a, you know, that, that physicalist conception. In a physicalist conception, it's very different. Because here, what I'm saying is the case in reality is the physical quantities and the prices or values per unit are determining the total values. In the physicalist conception, the physical quantities are determining the prices and thereby the value aggregates as well. 
So everything is determined physically. In, in what I'm talking about, it's not that. You know, there are prices, there is value, values per unit times the physical quantities gives you the value totals. Mm-hmm. The need to talk about physical quantities to evaluate the strength of growth, Grossman's predictions, is that unique to Grossman? or you always, you always, in every case, need to know what's going on with the physical quantities and the prices or values per unit, okay, not just, you know, the, the, the value numbers. Because again, you spend $100 on jelly beans, now you spend $120 on jelly beans. What's going on? Well, could be you're consuming more jelly beans. Or it could be the price of jelly beans has gone up by 20%. Or it could be, you know, some combination of the two, right? How the hell are you going to know? You, you, can't, you can't know without knowing the precise quantity of jelly beans and the precise change in the price of jelly beans. It's as simple as that, okay? It's something you always need to know, whether you're talking about investment in means of production or you're talking about, you know, Brendan Cooney purchasing jelly beans. So what happens with Grossman's model when you incorporate physical quantities? Okay, this is what gets really interesting. So he says it's a problem of the valorization the creation of surplus value, the valorization of capital. There's not enough surplus value to continue accumulation at the postulated rate. Okay, now, first of all, what I'm able to show is that this condition, uh, which he states in terms of surplus value, actually reduces to the idea that the total value of the output is less than the the value of the required amount of investment in new means of production and consumption goods for the workers. So the total value of output uh, that's been produced is less than what is needed to match the forthcoming volume of investment in, in, in value terms. But then I'm able to say, okay, what is actually happening in terms of use value Okay, that's the breakdown condition in terms of value, but in terms of use value, what it means is the physical amount of output that has been produced is less than the required amount of physical stuff that's going to be invested. The physical output of one period is less than the physical amount of means of production that's being demanded plus the physical amount of workers' consumption goods that are being demanded. Okay, so the productive demand in physical terms is outstripping physical production or physical supply. That's the real meaning of all of this fancy talk about not enough surplus value. The, the economy is just not producing enough stuff compared to the demand for that stuff for investment purposes. And some of this is just an artifact of the um, the rates of growth that Grossman chooses to model. Uh, yes. I mean, I mean, very, very clearly. Um, you, you know, you, you can only have physical investment demand outstrip the physical production if either implicitly or explicitly that's what you're assuming because in reality you, you can't have more means of production and plus workers consumption goods than that that those that have already been produced i, I anticipate that you're talking about the issue of 
uh, that in the in the Bauer scheme that Grossman takes over, the per unit values of the commodities are held constant over time. What I've just talked about does not depend on that at all. Okay, whatever is happening, whether the prices per unit are rising, falling, or remaining the same, the breakdown condition actually reduces. Grossman's breakdown condition actually reduces to the idea that the economy breaks down because the amount of physical stuff produced is insufficient to uh, meet the demands for physical investment in means of production and workers' consumption goods. Right. But I was just saying, why would an economy arrive at that state? Right. So it's just because the particularly arbitrary starting point where he's chosen certain rates of growth and rates of surplus value, et cetera. Yes, so, right. And and not intentionally, but the unavoidable consequence of that is that you get physical rates of, of growth like this. Um, I mean, what happens is that in the Grossman model, the means of production and the constant capital grow at 10% per year. The total value of output and therefore the actual physical output grow more slowly than that because the total value of output is partly the value transferred from the constant capital and that part's growing by 10% per year but there's the new value added which is the sum of the uh, variable capital and surplus value and that's only growing by 5% per year. So the constant capital and means of production are growing at 10% the total value of output is growing more slowly necessarily because it's uh, part of it is growing at, at 10%, but the other part's mm-hmm. only growing at 5%. So I guess I have two questions that are not, that are going in different directions, but maybe just um, first, you know, you said that his theory was like fatally flawed or some words to that effect at the beginning of the podcast. So just so people are clear, like what's the fatal flaw? Okay. So, the, the, the fatal flaw is that you've got this model where the prices or values per unit of the commodities are held constant over time despite technological improvements that are continuous and therefore continual growth of productivity. As Grossman was very well aware, and he critiqued Bauer for this, you can't have it both ways. You have to have it so that if you've got technological progress, you've got rising productivity and the values or prices of commodities per unit fall over time and what happens is that in the, then if you put all, all of this into the context of Marx's value theory although you can definitely say the physical means of production grow at 10% while the new value based on the amount of living labor pumped out of the workforce grows at 5% That can be totally true, but it will not be the case that the constant capital rises by 10% per year. Because constant capital is a value term. It depends on the 10% growth of the means of production in physical terms, but the other factor is that the prices per unit are falling. Okay, and that counteracts that. Okay, so I'm able to show that as time proceeds, the amount by which the constant capital grows, if the means of production are growing at 10% and the new value is growing at 5%, the constant capital will also be growing only at 5%. 
So there does not come a point where the value that is needed for investment, you know, the investment demand in value terms is outstripping uh, the supply that's been produced. So the breakdown doesn't happen. The breakdown does not happen. End of story, it, it cannot happen. The only way it could happen is if, in physical terms, there is more demand for means of production and workers' consumption goods in physical terms than the economy uh, is able to supply. That can always happen. The point is that we're not just talking about something that could happen. What we're involved here in is the theorization of the inherent structural tendencies of capitalism. And there is no inherent structural tendency of capitalism that says, okay, you've got to produce less than uh, less physical stuff than the demand for that physical stuff. There's no inherent structural tendency to that effect. So Grossman thought he had an inherent structural tendency based on means of production growing faster than, you know, the new value. But no, no structural tendency towards an insufficient level of production results from that. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. 
To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. My understanding is that one critique of Grossman that one can find early on, after he, right after he published his work, was critique of the assumptions he makes about investment rates. But you're not just critiquing that. Your critique is qualitatively different because you're saying that even given his assumptions about investment rates, if you introduce these issue of physical quantities, that breakdown doesn't happen. That's exactly correct. That's what I'm saying. And in fact, for developed capitalist Western economy, you know, maybe 10% and 5% in physical terms, uh, those growth rates, maybe they're excessive. But if you look at a country like China, Mm -hmm. 10% growth of means of production per year and 5% growth of uh, the workforce in the capitalist sector, that's not at all unreasonable. Another thing you point out in the paper is that the type of crisis that Grossman's breakdown describes is different than the way economic crisis typically presents itself in a capitalist society. Yeah, it's the exact opposite. Right, which which makes a lot of sense. Like, and it's hard to think of like global economic crisis that look like what he's describing, where there's a lack of capital to invest in, and this huge demand for investment capital. So, but maybe just go into that a little more detail. Right. Well, you know, it sounds reasonable. There's not enough surplus value. Ah, okay. You know, well, no, that sounds very good. But when you say, which is the case, that the breakdown condition is actually that the total value of output is less than the demand for that output, okay? And that the physical amount of output is less than the physical amount of, you know, new investment goods demanded, then it's an entirely different story. You see that it's really a problem of physical demand outstripping physical supply, and therefore the dollar amount of demand outstripping the dollar amount of supply. And that just ain't what happens in capitalist crises. They're exactly the opposite. You know, what, what happens in a, in a crisis is, you know, at the onset of a recession is, for whatever reason, investment demand, demand for, you know, means of production, machines, raw materials, it slows down. And you could have, sometimes you do have a slowdown because they lay off workers, a slowdown in consumption and demand as well. So whatever the real causes of these downturns in the economy are, the, the phenomenon, the immediate thing going on is you get a slowdown in demand uh, or an actual fall in demand okay and that's what triggers you know the, the the downturn there is not enough demand to buy up all the stuff that's been produced so the level of production's got to be cut back that that's what a capitalist crisis is i'm not saying this is a sufficient way of explaining what goes on no but that's the phenomenon. In, in Grossman, though, he wasn't aware of it because he didn't compute any physical quantities. He got the exact opposite phenomenon. Not too much supply compared to the now current level of demand. He's got too little supply compared to the required level of demand. 
It's, it's, it's the exact opposite. So the idea that, okay, well, you know, Grossman, he has this breakdown condition, but what he's really trying to do is explain the downturns of capitalism. Okay, but this is not a, a way to explain the downturns of capitalism at all. When you, you actually, like, look at the mechanics of what Grossman is saying, the details, uh, and the details of what Marx is saying, there's just, you're comparing apples and oranges. Um, these issues of breakdown and, you know, the, the, the amount of value that's being produced compared to uh, the demand for it, these are just not the issues on which Marx's crisis theory turns. So I know you haven't, well, at least the last version of the paper that I saw doesn't discuss the sort of political implications and the appeal of fatalism, but I know you're planning to talk about that in the paper. So do you have, do you have thoughts about, about that? Why the theory? I mean, maybe it's obvious that a theory that predicts the breakdown of capitalism as inevitable is politically appealing to people who want to see the end of capitalism. But I wonder if you have more profound thoughts about that. Right. I, I, I've written a short section that, that you haven't seen that, that does address this. First, I, I make clear that Grossman himself was not a fatalist. Uh, Rick Kuhn has done, you know, very good work trying to, like, make clear what Grossman's actual thinking was. Uh, he says that this breakdown tendency does not take the form of an absolute, complete, irreversible collapse of capitalism. It expresses itself by means of crises, which the crises then restore the possibility of profitable accumulation. So we go around the circle once again, and the capitalists aren't going to put up with all of the available profit being plowed into you know means of production and workers' consumption goods, and them having nothing for their personal consumption. So they fight to drive down the workers' wages and benefits, and so you get these these uh, class struggles over income distribution. That was Grossman's thinking. Be that as it may, however, the fatalists, okay, the people who think that capitalism is headed for a terminal, irreversible collapse, those people are among the major devotees of Grossman today. He's their main inspiration, and he's if not the main, he's a main source uh, that they cite. And, you know, we, we've talked about uh, Michael Roberts as one of them. And, I mean, this is why the issue concerns me and why I say, you know, it's not enough that I know that Grossman got things wrong and that you cannot use this breakdown model or the theory that's based on the breakdown model plus modifications. You just cannot use this as a basis for crisis theory or, or a basis for politics because it just doesn't wash. But I'm very concerned about fatalism. What's driving me is, is, is an attempt to address the problem of fatalism within the radical movement. Okay, so basically, I very briefly, but uh, I, I cover what I think are five things that are wrong with uh, fatalism in terms of uh, its political implications, why it's politically deleterious. Okay, first of all, the obvious one is that fatalism often takes the form of a politics of what's called quietism. The idea that you can sit back and do nothing because supposedly the complete collapse of capitalism is inevitable, in any case irreversible, even if there's you know no social struggles. But you also get the opposite 
kind of politics that can flow from fatalism, but it's equally harmful. You, there, you got an activist politics, not at all, you know, sitting back, but it's marred by overconfidence, by a lack of regard for risks and dangers and possible failures. Che Guevara, okay, he didn't sit back and do nothing. He was the opposite type. He, he wrote to his mother that he had, quote, an absolutely fatalistic sense of my mission, which strips me of all fear. Okay, so he, he, he recognized that his fatalistic sense of his mission was the source of his over, overconfidence. Uh, so those are two things. Third, there, there's the problem of basing one's politics on faith rather than reason. A fatalistic outlook serves as a rationale for a really unwarranted kind of faith. Faith that victory is guaranteed. Faith that history is on our side. Why? Because we, we know what's going to happen. It's inevitable. Okay, so because we know what's going to happen, it's inevitable, our victory is guaranteed, and despite what we do and whatever may come, history is on our side. And fourth, then, that is really ethically problematic, as a historian at Stanford University has uh, argued recently, uh, Priya Satya, she says this idea that, you know, history is on our side, in quote, enables people to act in a manner that they know to be morally dubious according to their present judgment. We will be vindicated by history, and despite everything, you know, the, the gulags are objectively progressive, you know, something like that. And finally, here's a problem that's really worrisome to me in light of, you know, the post-truth politics and stuff that we've talked about. Fatalism just erodes respect for truth and seeking the truth. Uh, for some reason that I really cannot understand, there are people out there who want to believe things that they can't possibly know to be true. For instance, uh, to take Michael Roberts again, who could possibly know that capitalism must reach its limits as a system of social organization, then break down and be replaced. Who could possibly know that capitalism is marching toward a terminal stage? It's one thing to believe that. It's one thing to say, okay, there are grounds for regarding such a scenario as possible, or even there are grounds for regarding that scenario as likely. But who could possibly, speaking truthfully, say that this is something that they actually know must inevitably come to pass. People don't. And so the idea that you can ground your politics in these propositions that you assert, don't you don't know them to be true. You can't know that they're, they're true. Nobody, nobody can know that they're true. There's something really flawed about that. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. I hope people go to With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to read Andrew's paper. It's going to have some interactive spreadsheets where you can test uh, Grossman's breakdown conditions on your own and, and see what you think of the logic. You can ask questions of Andrew there or, or leave comments. That'll be at uh, marxisthumanist.org. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by marxisthumanistinitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, 
and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 